Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're going to keep going through our series in the book of Luke. I have two more weeks after this one, and then I'm on holidays. And, uh, and so we're finishing up the, the series on Luke uh, just, uh, just before I go. And, uh, and so I'm just going to, I'm going to just keep going right after where we ended last week. Last week we looked at the Last Supper, the, the, the story of communion there. This is the night before, well, it's the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, the day before he's going to be crucified. That's the setting. And I'll read you four verses here, and it's, it's one of those passages, uh, one of those famous stories, the disciples are going to have a fight with each other. And I find this entire passage deeply uh, disturbing and encouraging at the same time. Very encouraging. And so it says this. So this is at the Last Supper. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's going to die on the cross. Of course, the disciples don't have a clear understanding of that. But verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, again, I said before, disturbing and encouraging all at the same time, it's Hard to believe that the disciples at this point in time, during the Last Supper, the day before his death, and again, they don't have a clear understanding of what's about to happen, but still, they know something's about to happen. And then at this moment in time, when Jesus is at his time, I know he's God of the universe, but in his human flesh there, when he's at his time of, of deepest need and sorrow and, and all that, that they would at this point in time have an argument among each other about who is the greatest is actually just mind-blowing, is it not? I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And, and I want to just set a little, I want to just put a little more of the setting. I want to just take a few minutes here at the beginning and set the table a little bit more because when you see all the, the context of what's happening here, you understand really uh, just the breadth of their selfishness, which I'm going to show you is actually a, a wonderful thing to think about. But uh, the setting of this whole thing, you have to understand, the disciples don't have a, like I said before, they don't have a clear understanding about the crucifixion at all. Jesus has been telling them over and over again, as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke these last weeks and months, he's been telling them over and over again, I'm about to die. But they don't, they don't get it. But at the same time, they know something's up. And one of the things you have to realize is at this particular Last Supper, I, I never actually thought this through clearly until this week as I was meditating on this, but... You have to understand, they're eating this Passover supper in secret. They're, they're, Jesus has actually hidden them away for this Passover supper, something I never picked up on before. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever wondered the question, uh, you know, over the years as, as you've read this story or heard this story, I wonder how many of you have ever wondered, why did Judas, uh, why did the high priests need Judas to betray Jesus? Uh, has any of you ever wondered that? Because for years I've often just kind of wondered, but I didn't take much time to think about it. Why did they need Judas to betray? Why didn't they just go and find Jesus? Like, how hard was it to find him? He was in the temple every single day. This is Passion Week. It's, 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 it's Thursday night. He's been in Jerusalem since the triumphal entry for, for a few days now already. And every day he's teaching in the temple, and he's infuriating the Jewish leaders. And, of course, they can't arrest him during the day in front of the crowds because the crowds love him. 
And, but what I didn't realize until I started to read carefully and look at it this week, actually every evening, one of the reasons they, they, they couldn't arrest him is every evening he was, during the day he was in Jerusalem, he was at the temple and he was infuriating the, the Jewish leaders. But in the evenings, he was, he was heading out of Jerusalem. Him and the disciples were going to a little town called Bethany and they were hiding themselves away outside of Jerusalem. Okay? And now this night, okay, because Jesus doesn't remember, he wants to die on Passover. He's going to die on Passover. That's the only time for him to do this. So he doesn't want to die before then. So he's been hiding himself away this week. Now this night, the night of Passover, you know, Thursday night, is he's going to go back into Jerusalem. So you can see now he wants to die. But remember what we looked at last week? He said, I have desired, desired. Remember that? I have desired, desired to eat this last supper, this Passover with you. So he doesn't want to be betrayed before he has the Passover. And so he actually sets it up. I never, I never put these things together before. He actually sets this whole supper up so that they're still hidden away at supper time. That's why Judas has to leave and go tell the priests where they are. And so he does this whole kind of cloak and dagger thing, okay? Do you all know what, how many of you, just put your hand in the air if you know what cloak and dagger means, okay? Do you know what cloak and dagger means? Some of you don't know what that is. I'll culture you a little bit. Cloak and dagger means it's like kind of spy stuff, all right? So Jesus does some, some prophetic cloak and dagger stuff. So first of all, he's been hiding in Bethany, but now this night, we're gonna, I'm going to read this to you right at the beginning of chapter 22. Uh, this night, he doesn't reserve a room in advance. First of all, he doesn't want anyone knowing where they're going to have the Last Supper. Because remember, he doesn't want them to come and get him during the Last Supper. Afterwards, he's, he's good to go. That's the plan. But he doesn't want them to know. So first of all, he doesn't tell anyone in advance. He certainly doesn't tell Judas. The day of, it's only the day of that he actually reserves this room. And he only tells two of the disciples, and even there, to go and, and get this room for them. And even there, he doesn't tell them where it is. I'll read it to you, okay? Luke chapter 22, this is the same chapter. Uh, verse 7, uh, then came the day of unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread was an ongoing feast that lasted a few days, um, but it started on, on Passover. Then came the day of unleavened bread, and this is, this is Thursday morning. Um, he's going to be crucified on Friday. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, two of his most trusted disciples. Notice Judas is not in there. Okay, saying he doesn't send all the disciples. He doesn't just tell them in general. He sends two of them. Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And then they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Now, even there, uh, now you're going to see, he doesn't tell them exactly where. Look what he does. This is his prophetic kind of uh, cloak and dagger stuff. Verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So the way Jesus sets it up is nobody can know where they're having the Passover supper. Because again, he doesn't want, he wants to have this Passover supper with them uninterrupted. Okay? And so he doesn't give it away. Now the other thing you have to understand here is only Jesus could have found a room on Passover without reserving it far in advance. Okay, Passover was the biggest holiday on the Jewish calendar uh, by far. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews from all over the nation of Israel and the Roman Empire from, all, from different nations flocked into Jerusalem for this day. There wasn't a room to be had. Only God in the flesh could say the day of. 
Uh, and what you're going to do is you're going to go there. There's going to be a guy with a jar of water. Just follow him. And when he opens the door to go in the house, just go right into the house too and tell the master, this, the teacher is going to be using this room tonight. Okay. Okay. So they're eating this. this so in all of this, I'm just telling you to give you kind of the setting. All right. And this is again why Judas has to, to leave and tell the chief priest. This is why the chief priest had to pay him to betray Jesus because Je- Jesus had hidden himself away during this time. So the, the disciples know this is dangerous. They don't know everything that's going to happen. Jesus has been telling them he's going to die, but they, and they, they haven't clearly understood that, but they know something is up. They know it's incredibly dangerous in Jerusalem. If you, if you read uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, when they head up to Jerusalem, Thomas, you know, famous doubting Thomas, is exasperated with Jesus because they're telling him, don't go up there. They want to stone you. And finally, he just says, well, let's just go up and die with them. They know it's very dangerous to be in Jerusalem. So they're hiding away in this Passover room. And now at the end of the Passover, Jesus drops another bombshell, okay? He just drops this massive bombshell. They know something's up. They're filled with sorrow. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that they fell asleep because of sorrow. They were so stressed out, they actually just slept it off. Some of you can, you can you know, relate to that, right? When things get really bad, it's like, just knock me out. Give me a pill, and I'm going to go lie down, right? And uh, that's what they, they so this is not a happy Last Supper, Okay? And now at the end of this supper, Jesus drops this bomb, this absolute bombshell, right? Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now remember, to us, it's not a bombshell because we've read this story so often. But remember, they were living this. For us, it's just like, oh yeah, Judas, of course, Judas betrayed him. Of course, couldn't they see that? No, they couldn't see that. They knew something bad was going to happen. Now Jesus drops this bombshell. These 12 have been together. They're like brothers for three and a half years. They've been through so much stuff together. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, they are, this is shock. Okay, they're already afraid. They're in hiding. And now this shocker, one of you is going to betray me. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this, okay? And so now, this is all part of the setting. Now, we're going to go back to the passage where I started this, okay? This, where we're going to spend the time in this message. The very next verse, not a few verses later, not half a chapter, okay? So remember, they're afraid. They're sad. Jesus has just dropped the bombshell. One of you is going to betray me, okay? This whole time. Now, you would think the next verse is they all went over to Jesus and hugged him. They fell at his feet and, and worshipped him and prayed. And uh, Nope, that's not what they do. The very next verse. I mean, this is Jesus in his human flesh at his time of greatest need. This is the time to worship, the time to pray, the time to console. And instead, what do they do? Very next verse. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This has got to be one of the most insanely petty and selfish arguments in the history of mankind. Is it not? I mean, it's just, this is, this is just absolutely unbelievable to argue out loud at this table with Jesus in this room at this time about who of us is the greatest. It's got to be one of the most selfish, self-centered, and petty things that has ever happened in human history. And that's why I have had so much joy going over this passage this week. It has given me tremendous joy. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But I'll tell you the first one. And the first one is this. Jesus doesn't pick superstars. Isn't it true? I mean, these are the guys. I want you just to think about it for a moment. 
These are the guys, this is the whole plan is in this room, okay? I mean, we're down from 12, we're down to 11 because Judas is out. These 11 are from the human perspective. I mean, we know God is the foundation, but from the human perspective, uh, the, the, this is the foundation of the church. He's going to leave, and these are the guys. The future of Christianity is the Holy Spirit through these guys. And at this moment, just before his death, they are arguing out loud about who is the greatest. It's absolutely nuts, and I find that absolutely so encouraging. Because how many of us spend our lives, right, this kind of weight of condemnation around us, oh, you know, Jesus doesn't listen to my prayers, Jesus can't care what I think, I'm too worldly, I'm too prayerless, I'm too selfish, because we see our own faults. And, and so at least some of us do, right? Some of us who, who live with condemnation, we wake up every morning, we see all the things where we don't even come close to matching up. And I just am here to encourage you this morning, these guys were not picked because their motives were so great and they were so full of love for Jesus. Okay? They were very extremely regular people. Now, the second thing that really encourages me out of this passage is Jesus' response to them. Because you would think at this moment, if you were Jesus, how do you respond in this moment? Right? If you were Jesus, I mean, you're the one who's about to go out into the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood because you are so stressed out. I mean, the weight of what you're carrying. I mean, this would be the moment to say, you self-centered ingrates. Slam your hand on the table, bam, I'm out of here, right? I'm done. I got to miraculously go find 11 new guys because I'm dying tomorrow, right? Do some kind of miracle on them and get them ready because I'm out of, you, you can't, how, it's about me, right? I mean, this is my time. Pay some attention to me. He would have been totally justified and right to do any of those things. And yet, this is not how Jesus responds to them in this moment. His response to them is, is two parts. I'm going to skip the first part. We'll come back to that. I want to just start with the second part, and then we'll go back and end the message on the first part. But I want you to see, we'll skip ahead just a couple of verses, and I want to see you to see uh, Jesus' response to them. Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Instead of calling them selfish ingrates, instead of lashing out at them for their shortcomings and their pettiness, Jesus actually looks past that stuff. He looks past the pettiness. It's extreme pettiness. He looks past the self-centeredness. He looks past it all and says something good to them. He says, this is what I love about you guys is you have stuck with me through thick and thin. That is just an unbelievably generous and gracious response, don't you think? I mean, this is one of those moments, uh, during the week, I just kept stopping, and we just have to take a moment and just worship Jesus, the king of the universe. This is unbelievably gracious and generous of him in this moment to look at them and to almost ignore what they're doing and look past it and say, you know what I love about you guys? You're the guys who have stuck with me through thick and thin. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. He doesn't label them according to what they do wrong. He labels them according to what they've done right. And that is love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes this wonderful chapter about love. Jesus lives it. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have the theory. In Luke chapter 22, we have it in practice. We have it in action. I'll just read you the one verse right near the end. It says... Love 
bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the next verse says, love never ends. This is what love is. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus perfectly embodies all of this. Love bears all things. These guys are fighting and self-centered. They've been with him three and a half years and he's about to die. Love bears all things. Does he quit on them? Does he leave? Does he get exasperated with them? Love bears all things. And it says, love believes all things. Now, it's not talking there about uh, being gullible, just believe anything you hear about someone. No, it's not talking about that. Uh, what, it, what it means is believes the best. Believes all things means Love looks at a person, and instead of believing the worst, it looks through that stuff and finds something good in that person and believes that thing about them. Believes for good in them. That's what Jesus did there in Luke 21. Past the pettiness, past the self-centeredness, past all of that stuff to say, you guys are loyal. I see something really good in you. Loyalty. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love doesn't give up on people. Love looks at the good, and then it believes for the good, and then it hopes for the good. It says, I'm looking down in the future, and I know that what I see in there, that's what's going to come out. That's who you really are. Love hopes all things, and love endures all things. That's what Jesus did in Luke chapter 22. And that is so absolutely super encouraging to me because he loves you and me with that same love. He loves you and me with that same love. I mean, this is why I love this story. This is why I love that the disciples were so weak in heaven. I'm going to say to them, thank you guys for being so normal. I mean, yes, we see some pretty cool stuff in the book of Acts, but I'm glad we first had the book of Luke. Amen? Because if all I would have seen was all the preaching and the miracles, it would have been like, well, I can never be that. But when I have the book of Luke, I go, oh, the book of Acts is all about Jesus doing some stuff through some regular people. That's what it is. Because these were regular guys. Jesus loves you with the same thing. Did you know that? You wake up in the morning and think, I don't pray enough. I'm not good enough. I don't do this enough. I'm, and we see all of our faults. And I want you to look at this verse and say, love bears all my things. That's how Jesus loves me. Love believes all things. Can you hear Jesus speaking to you? Looking through the wall of selfishness and pettiness and seeing the best and hoping all things for you and enduring all things for you. That's how Jesus loves you. And that's why when you walk with Jesus, this is the kind of love that starts to come out of us to others. You can't not do it. How, see, Christianity is not just a, a, a prayer that you pray. It's not just, oh, I prayed a prayer once, now I go to church, now I'm not changed. Christianity is not a prayer. That's just to pray a prayer. If that's all there is to it, that's superstition. To give your life to Jesus is to give your life to a real person and encounter him. This is how he is. And when his life is coursing through you, as you experience this for yourself, you begin to do this for others. Can you imagine how radically different our lives would be if we took this verse, saw it in practice, look at it in practice there in Luke 22, if we, how different our marriages would be if we loved our spouses that way? Can you imagine? If you loved your spouse the way Jesus loved his disciples there, instead of focusing on the bad, if you went through that and focused on the good and called that out and believed for that, can you imagine how your parenting would be different? Can you imagine how different this church would be, how different your workplace would be if we would love like this? 
It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. By the way, just a short little rabbit trail, because I know some people will take a point, and then they'll take it to a place it's not supposed to go. And uh, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, does this mean I can never be honest with someone? Like, uh, does this mean, I mean, love believes all things, hopes all things. I've got to look past the bad and see the good. Does this mean if someone's, you know, doing wrong or doing sin, I can never rebuke or I can never say, hey, that bothers me? And the answer is, I mean, certainly look at the example of Jesus through the Gospels. Jesus was honest with people. And he was honest with the disciples. So the fact that we are to love like this doesn't mean we can't be honest. The, but it's how you're honest. And I always like, someone called it once the sandwich principle, and it's actually the way Jesus does it even here in Luke 22. You can still be honest with people. You need to be honest. In your marriage, you need to be honest. If something's bothering you, if some, or if someone is doing something wrong in your family or wherever, you know, a church, and you need to tell them something honestly, you need to do it. But what you do is, it, it's, it's like a sandwich. You approach it like a sandwich. So you got two pieces of bread, and then in the middle, you got this thin slice of bologna, and bologna doesn't taste good. Okay, I don't care what any of you say, bologna does not taste good. All right? But anyway, so it's like a sandwich. And the bologna, that thin slice of meat in the middle, that's the part where you have to tell someone and you're honest and you got to do that. Look, when you do such and such, that, it really hurts me, it bothers me. Or when you're doing, you know what, that's a disaster, that's wrong what you're doing, and I just got to tell you that. That's the piece of bologna in the middle. But you don't just tell them that. You sandwich it between two pieces of bread. You start with... This is what I appreciate about you. This is what I appreciate about you. This is what I see in you. Just like Jesus did with the disciples. This is what I see in you. This is the pettiness. That's not you. This is you. You're loyal. You're the one who sticks with me through thick and thin. Whatever it is, you call that out, you appreciate it. And you say, by the way, just, you know, but when you do this, I mean, that's wrong. That really hurts me or bothers me or whatever. Tell them. And then go back to, but that's not who you are. This is who you are. And you call it out of them, all right? So we can still be honest, but it's, it's like this. This is what it means to be like Jesus. Now, I want to go back to that verse 28 there. You are those who stay with me. And I want to just focus in on that trait of loyalty. It's, not, it's no accident you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. It's no accident that Jesus picks that one out. Because actually, when you look through the scriptures, this is actually probably one of the number one things, I mean, you could, you could put it under the label of love possibly too, but this loyalty, you know, under the label of love or however you want to do it, this is actually one of the most important traits to Jesus. Did you know that? If you exhibit this trait, that you'll just persevere, you'll just hold on to Jesus no matter how bad things get, if you will exhibit that trait, he will joyfully overlook and work with you on all kinds of other issues. Did you know that? In fact, the calling on our lives in following Jesus is really not that complicated. It's not following me perfectly means, and then here's 10 or 15 steps. That's not what it is. Basically, you know what Jesus' calling on us is? He looks for simple people who will just say yes to him and then will hang on to him no matter what. They'll hang on to him no matter what happens in their family, no matter what happens in their marriage, no matter what happens in their finances, no matter what happens to them in their health. They will just hang on no matter what. And if you do that, Jesus gladly looks past lots of the junk in your life. Oh, he wants to work on it with you too, and he'll bring you to repentance. But he'll look and he'll call that out and he'll say, but you have stuck with me through thick and thin. I'll just briefly run you through a few verses on this. And I've talked about a bunch of these before. I just have to keep doing it. I just feel it's so relevant to our church in this time. This is the calling of the Christian life. Look at this. Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's, that's the one who's saved. 
It's not just a pray, prayer you prayed one, once. It's the one who sticks with Jesus through trials. And for those people, he says, oh. And you're like, oh, but I'm so bad and this, this, and this. He says, oh, but forget about that for a second. You stuck with me through thick and thin. I love you. Matthew 24, 9 and 13, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. How about Hebrews 3, verse 6? But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son and we are his house. In other words, his people. Who are Jesus' people? Who are Jesus' friends? Who are Jesus' people? Who are his house? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Those who hang on to Jesus through thick and thin, you might have all kinds of problems and issues. And Jesus unashamedly looks at you and says, that's my people. Yeah, but that person is all messed up. That's my people. They stick with me through thick and thin. And one more verse here from, the, from a different angle, Luke 9, 26. Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me. The big thing with Jesus is, do you stick with him? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will I be ashamed. So when the going gets tough, when the pressure increases, whether from your health or whether it's from persecution or whether it's from your marriage or whatever it is, when the, when the pressure goes up, do you forsake Jesus? Do you become ashamed of Jesus? Or do you stay with Jesus no matter what? Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me, and in my words, I will be ashamed of him. Now there's one more little piece in this verse before we go back to Luke 22. I just want to take note of and of my words. This is really important. For whoever is ashamed of me, but not just me, and of my words. And the reason I want to bring this up is I see something happening in our, in our culture that as, and we're certainly not in a persecution yet, not by any stretch of the imagination. We, we see persecution around the world, and when you see real persecution, we're not in persecution yet. But certainly we can see a trajectory in our culture certainly there is increasing pressure against us as Christians and against Christianity. There's not even a question that's happening right now. And what I already see, and this has happened throughout history, and if, if you read any history, you'll see this has happened over and over again, but as the pressure increases, some Christians are uh, happy or they're looking for excuses to compromise. And what they'll sometimes do is they'll make a division between the Bible and Jesus, and this is what happens. So they'll make a distinction between Bible and Jesus. And the Christian will say, hey, if anybody ever asks me to renounce Jesus' name, I will never renounce Jesus' name. But if pressure comes along to compromise with something in God's word, it's, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal to some people. Some unpopular law, some unpopular truth, some unpopular passage. Well, I'll never, I'll never compromise. I'll never renounce Jesus' name. But if you're going to force me you know, I'll lose my job or I'll lose money or I'll lose whatever it is unless I compromise on something in here. Well, that's a different thing. I'll never announce Jesus' name, but sure, I can sign off on that. They think there's a difference between compromising on something unpopular in here and compromising in terms of renouncing the name of Jesus. I want you to notice here with Jesus, Jesus makes absolutely no distinction between compromising on his word and compromising on him. You want to know why? He wrote these words and he's not ashamed of any of them. Jesus, you know, we get embarrassed about stuff in here. 
like stuff, some of the stuff in Leviticus and some of the stuff in Numbers, Jesus is absolutely unembarrassed about anything in his word. That doesn't mean it's not sometimes hard to describe and explain to people, but he's not embarrassed about anything in this book. And he says, I wrote it, this is who I am. So actually, to compromise on his word, on any of those unpopular laws or unpopular truths, Jesus ties that as the saying. You renounce this thing, you're renouncing me. That's what you're renouncing. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. That's an important thing for us to pay attention to. Ashamed of me and my words. And I just wonder, you know, I think more and more, and I, I, I bring this up in some of my messages now, but I think as Christians, not enough of us have actually counted the cost. I think not enough of us have actually counted this cost. I wonder, you know, high school students and university students who are here this morning, have you counted the cost? Those of you who are going to end up going to university, let's say, I could tell you stories already that are happening in universities here in Canada and in this province. Stuff that happens in classrooms, stuff that professors say and do that would absolutely just absolutely blow your mind. Okay? But what are you going to, have you counted the cost? What happens if you're in a university class and it actually could mean a failing grade or a failing paper or not being able to finish an assignment if doing one of those things forces you to compromise, maybe not renounce Jesus' name blatantly, but forces you to compromise or go against something in here, are you willing to not get into the faculty you want to get into? Are you willing to fail a class? Are you willing to fail an assignment for the sake of Jesus' name and his word? Those who are ashamed of me and my word, I will be ashamed of him when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Have we counted that cost? How about teachers and doctors, politicians, police officers, business people, on and on and on? What would you do if suddenly something was required of you that for, would force you to do something or say you were in agreement with something that is not in agreement with this? And I'm not, I'm not saying this absolutely is going to happen in the, right in the near future, but it certainly could. Isn't it true? It could. Have we counted the cost? It gets a little bit quiet when going to church See, it's easy to be a Christian when all that being a Christian requires is just go to church and pray before a meal. And it actually doesn't cost us anything. But what if, what if holding to this would cost you a job, a profession, a lot of money, a contract, whatever it is, would we be willing to stand with Jesus through thick and thin? Loyalty is one of his biggest things. He loves imperfect people. We're all imperfect. But he does ask this, endure with me through thick and thin to the end. This is not a peripheral issue for Jesus. This is a huge issue for Jesus. Now, of course, if all we did was spend time talking about not compromising, you could get a certain kind of uncompromising, this sort of clench your fists and grit your teeth and be angry at the world. We will never compromise. That's a kind of loyalty. We will always be loyal to Jesus. We will never compromise. We don't like any of you in the world. That is, that's not the kind of Loyalty Jesus is looking for, is it? So what kind of loyalty, what kind of loyalty is Jesus looking for? He's looking for uncompromising firmness and loyalty, but it's not a hands-clenched, teeth-gritted, angry-at-the-world loyalty. It's a different kind of loyalty. We find that in this passage, too. So we go back now and look at the first part of Jesus' response to his disciples. We're going to find 
the kind of loyalty he wants from us. And so verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it. It's all about power, and they want to be called benefactors. Now, in Jesus' day, that was like a title. Wealthy, powerful people wanted to be called benefactor, and it meant that all the people kind of underneath you, the little people, were dependent on you. So it was a prestigious title. It was like a title. So Jesus says with the, with the, in, the, in the secular world, it's all about titles and influence and power and respect and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's what it is in the secular world. And then he goes on to say this, verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So now when he says about us becoming like the youngest, he's not talking in terms of enthusiasm, immaturity. Uh, he's not talking become childlike, some kind of childlike quality. Uh, he's not talking about that. See, the thing you have to understand is in Jesus's culture, it was very much um, an honor system, a, a respect system, uh, but it was ba- a lot of it was based on age. The older you were, the more respect you had automatically. And the younger you were, the less respect you had. It was, it was really a case of younger and younger and younger. It was kind of be seen, be seen and not be heard. And they, when I talk about an honor culture, we don't even get that here. We're an egalitarian culture. We like everybody to feel equal. In that culture, every time you sat down for a meal, every single day, multiple times a day, you would sit down for a meal, and every day the pecking order would get reinforced because there was places of honor, there's places of less honor. And every meal, you had to sit in your place. And the older, uh, wiser, you know, those kinds of people, people with power, they got the honorable places, and then down and down and down, and then the youngest were in the places of least honorable position. People didn't listen to you. You had to serve and do the things other people didn't want to do. So Jesus is not saying here, if you're a Christian, go and be like the youngest. Oh, hey, hey, and I'm, you know, immature and I'm happy and all that sort of stuff, which is fine for some people, Okay. But that's not what he's talking about as Christians. He's saying become as the youngest. Become as, be happy with no honor. If you're one of my followers, to not be recognized, to not be noticed, to not have a say, to not have influence is actually your joy. It's actually your joy. What a wonderful thing it is to have no honor and to not be noticed. But not so with you. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And he who leads as him who serves. Verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I, that's in the world's eyes, but I, the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, God of the universe in the flesh, but I am among you as the one who serves. As human beings, we just crave power, position, recognition, titles. We, we crave all that sort of stuff. Jesus is the greatest person that ever lived. He's our king. He's the one we're following. And he says, but I came to serve. So the kind of loyalty now, we see these two things juxtaposed in this passage. Jesus says, I want uncompromising loyalty from you. You stick with me through thick and thin. But it's not a hard-hearted, mad-at-the-world loyalty. It's called servant loyalty. That's what Jesus wants. We will absolutely not bend. We will absolutely not compromise on the things in God's word, no matter how mad people get at us for that. 
And at the same time, though, we won't be mad at the world. We will love the world and we will serve the world. We will serve the very people who hate us. We will serve the very people who persecute us. We will happily go without honor. We will happily be misunderstood. We will happily be accused and lied about. And we will serve the world. We will serve the community. We will serve each other. Servant loyalty. I came as one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. Now again, this is what it means to be a Christian. If you have no intention of having a servant heart or being a servant, are you a Christian? Is there such a thing? Have you actually encountered Jesus? Because if you've encountered him and his life is flowing into your life, you won't be perfect. And it might take many, many years. For many of us, it takes many years to grow. But there will be some movement in this direction. If you have a walk with Jesus, this is what being a Christian is. And it's not just, you know, oh, this is one of those things. Now he's going to give a plug to serve once a month in church or once a week. If you're serving once a month, start serving once a week, serve one in church. This is so much bigger than volunteering at church. This is so much bigger than volunteering once a week in church. That's just a small piece of this. Being a servant like Jesus means you get up in the morning and get out of bed and you've got servant goggles on. This is who I am. I'm not looking for recognition and power and influence. I'm actually just looking to serve the people around me. It starts in the home. One of the most spiritual things you can do is serve in the home. Husbands, you're not just sitting on a couch in the evening watching someone on TV and your wife is doing all the work. You're serving in the home. One of the most spiritual things you can do is actually get up off that couch and go and help. You know, that's just a small thing. Like, I, I, I mean, it's got to be something bigger than that. That is what being a Christian is. It's the unnoticed small things. And if you can't do that, you're not going to do anything else for Jesus. And on the other side, I, I don't want to just make it seem like men don't serve. I don't like to dabble in stereotypes. I like to be equal opportunity right across the board. <laughs> but you know, you know, ladies, and again, just to dabble in stereotypes, I know, and again, in this service, I know none of you have this problem. Zero. It's the other services that I'm so mad at sometimes, but... <laughs> But, you know, women, so just, and this is not a lot of women, but some women, you know, you stay at home, you're home at home during the day with the kids or whatever. This is not, I'm on Facebook all day long, and then when my husband comes home yet, he has to do all a bunch of stuff yet as well, and I do nothing. This is serving each other. It's like, honestly, this is what being with Jesus is. Now you have serving goggles, and, and my heart is to serve. And if you will serve in the home like that, now your life is going to begin to change with the life of Jesus pouring through you. And now you begin to serve, and it goes out of that as well. Of course, then, how are we going to serve the body of Christ? How are we going to serve this community? How are we going to love people and show them the love of Jesus even when they hate us? How are we going to do that? Do you know the early church would have been shocked at the idea of a, of a Christian who doesn't serve the body? What? Does such a thing exist? You, you mean what? You go to church once a week and then the rest of the time you just kind of do your own thing. Oh, interesting. That, and that's a Christian? Okay. The early church would have known none of that. A Christian was someone, they were constantly breaking bread together. They were having the Lord's Supper together. They were praying together. They were serving each other. And, and they were evangelizing together. That's, that's, what, that's what a person does. You meet Jesus. You're overflowing with love. So of course it's going to spill over onto others. I want to just finish with just a couple of uh, stories. I had an interesting, uh, this last week I, I uh, went and visited, I did not ask him for permission. I, I can see him here in the service. I had to be real careful. Um, I have to tell the, tr the, the truth. And, uh, but uh, I, uh, I went to a gentleman's home and I, just, to, just to visit him, pastoral visit. And uh, 
I went to visit him, and, and he's, uh, he's, he's retired. And I walked into the, into the house in the living room, and he had this whole setup for making a blanket. He had a huge unfinished blanket on there. And, and so I just, my first thing was, oh, who's, who's working on this? I thought, maybe his wife is making a blanket for Christmas or something. Like, I know blankets, I have never made a blanket in my life, but I know they take a while. My wife has done some, some knitting and stuff. This wasn't knitting, it was a different thing, but anyway. Um, anyway, he sees this blanket. I said, what, what, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm making a blanket. And I was like, okay, so this is like a, it's like a Christmas gift. You're, you're starting in July, it's, it takes a while. Oh, no, he had made... Uh, Four blankets already that week. And I'm like, what? He spends hours a day um, making these blankets. And he's got a connection, uh, some charity, some group ministry, whatever. And they give these blankets to very needy people in, in Russia. And so here's this guy. And, and his biggest interruption is people coming in for uh, help. He helps people with, uh, he used to do some chiropractor stuff. He helps people who are in pain and different things like that. So his biggest interruption on the blankets is people coming in for help with, with uh, health stuff. And I thought to myself, and then he prays, you know, he prays uh, for any staff he knows by name, okay? So I'm trying to keep the rest of them from giving him his name because I want more prayer for myself. But anyway, <laughs> um, any staff he knows by name, he prays for us. You know, day after day after day, week after week after week. And I just thought to myself, okay, so here he is, retired. Instead of sitting and watching TV all day, here's something I can do. And what's he doing? He's serving. You know what that is? That's what happens when the life of Jesus comes into someone. You don't, you don't even desire anyone. And of course, there's lots of time. There's Sabbath, and there's rest, and we have fun in life. It's not about you never have fun in life. You never go for a holiday. You never just sit down and watch a movie. Of course we do all those things. That's, I'm, the, but... If you have met Jesus, somewhere in there, there is going to be fruit. He was a servant, and we will be servants through thick and thin. Servant loyalty. Or some of our people that serve outside of these walls, who take positions. I can think of some people in this church who have made deep sacrifices uh, of family time and personal time to take positions that bring with them uh, struggle and stress in the community in order to be salt and light because they feel God's calling them. What would make a person not live the easy life and instead live a servant life? I'll tell you what it is. It's actually having a walk with our Lord Jesus Christ and out of him he fills you so much with his love. When he looks at you and you go to him with all your filthy rags and he looks past the filthy rags and says, this is what I see in you. I see that you are one of those who sticks with me through thick and thin and you feel so good. That's what you see in me and you out of that overflow of joy, you turn around now. I have to go and serve someone else. I have to go and serve someone else. So here's what I want to do. We talked about lots here today. None of us, absolutely none of us, the older I get, the more I realize you can't change lots of things in your life every week. You just can't. Nobody can change two, three, four things in their life every week. We're lucky if we can change a couple of things in our lives per year. So we preach the word of God anyway. The seeds go in there, and they're going to bear fruit at some, some point. But I don't think Jesus wants you to go home from this message thinking about three or four things. I think he, for each one of us, he wants us to go home with just one thing. What is one thing that Jesus wants you to take home from this message? I'm going to give a moment, just a moment to just listen. But what is one thing? We've just sat and worshiped Jesus. We just sat and listened to his word. Surely the Holy Spirit has one thing for each of us. He wants us to take home. One thing he wants us to think about. Maybe one thing he wants us to, to convict us of. Maybe for some of you, 
the Holy Spirit is talking to you about someone in your life, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, family member, and he's saying, you keep focusing on the negative. You keep nagging on the negative and calling out the negative. I want you to look past that just like I do with you. It's sin. Repent of it. And I want you to start seeing the good and calling that out instead. You know, God, every human being has been made in the image of God. That means there's something of God in that person and there's something good to see. It's sin on you if you can't find it. So you find it like Jesus did with the disciples and like Jesus does with us every day. You find that good thing and you start to call that out and focus on that. Or maybe Jesus is saying to you today, it's time for you to serve in the home. Actually, the most spiritual thing you could do right now is step up your game at home. It's time for you to serve in the home, to help more with the kids, to help more with the dishes, to help more with whatever it is. It's time for you to step up. This is, he came to serve. The greatest person who ever lived came to serve. It's time for us to serve everywhere we go, to live that. Or maybe it is time for you to serve in the church or the community. What is Jesus saying to you? How could you go through your life and then stand before Jesus at the end of your life? And he says, so where did you serve? Well, I had a good job. I had a great life. Greatest person who ever lived came to serve. Or maybe Jesus is speaking to you about compromise and he's saying, it's time to count the cost. And it's time for you to, to, to make the decision in your mind and in your family that you're all in with this and you'll never compromise no matter what it costs you. Why don't you just bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's take a moment and let the Holy Spirit just speak to each one of us. Lord Jesus, would you give each one of us one thing? What is one thing you want us to take from this message? If something comes to your mind, you can just write it down, put it in your phone, write it on your hand. What is one thing you want us to take home from this message? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your generous heart. Thank you for your love for your disciples the same way that you love us. Thank you that we don't have to be perfect for you. And thank you for the joy we can have in serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.